and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by Veredas and their UK distributor, Zebra. I'm Pippa Rune, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, by the time you listen to this, we'll be in the final days of December, so I hope you have your feet up by a roaring fire with a leftover mince pie and a glass of mulled wine. Or perhaps you're getting ready to welcome the new year with something bubbly. Today we have a special New Year podcast for you. To mark the end of 2021, we're going to take a look back at our podcast year and we've asked the team at Horse and Hound to pick out their favourite interviews of 2021 and share them with us once again. We'll be hearing from some of the riders who've made this year special in British horse sport, such as Tom McEwen, Lottie Fry and Ben Mayer, as well as those who are simply our favourite interviewees of the past 12 months, from Charlotte Dujardin to David Broom and Ginny Elliott. I'll be back with you later to choose my own favourite interviews. But first up, I'm handing over to Horse and Hounds show jumping editor Jennifer Donald to kick us off. Thank you, Pippa. Well, in the show jumping world, 2021 will be remembered for one glorious golden moment, which still gives me goosebumps. It is, of course, Ben Mayer winning Olympic gold with the incredible explosion. I may have said on this podcast before the Games that it would be a travesty if this pair didn't win gold, but it was almost written in the stars. Their jump off round was like nothing I've ever seen before and Ben gave us some fascinating insights into Explosion's performance and the incredible bond they share when chatting to our Olympic reporter Polly Bryan out in Tokyo. He's uh, he, he's not a typical show jumper or what you would look for but when you when you sit on him and you feel the the engine he's, he's like a machine uh, underneath me and uh, naturally so fast in the jump off when I when I cut the corners and angle, um, he's always had his ears forward. He's always uh, looking, they're like kind of radars, always looking for what I'm asking him to do next. And it just makes makes the difference in those split second decisions. There was, there was one jump in the jump off. Uh, I felt a little bit slow, slower than I wanted to be on the first three jumps. And I didn't want to be walking out of the arena feeling I could have done more. So I uh, took a big chance across the middle of the ring to the, the Brown Oxer, I believe. And he, he kind of questioned what I was asking him to do because it was a risky move. And uh, fortunately, he made the right decision and trusted me and everything paid off. Brilliant stuff from Ben, as always. Now we're going to rewind a bit for another of my favourite interviews from this year, when we were joined by the legendary and much adored David Broom. Now, I could listen all day to David's stories about the show jumping world and all his incredible achievements, but there is one horse he talks so passionately about, and that's the wonderful Mr. Softy. Here's what he had to say about the first of his two gold medal winning performances at the European Championships in 1967. Well, it was was a great week. I remember walking the course with, with Harvey for one of the classes, I think it's probably the last class. And there was an oxer between the two trees going directly away from the collecting ring. And Harvey put his, stretched his arms out between the fence. It needed about another two foot on the end of his arms to touch both poles. That's how wide it was. And it was planks on the front, planks on the back in cups. Now, if you made a mistake at that, you went head over heels. There's no question of that. Those were the jumps in those days. But Mr. Softy jumped, he obviously jumped it terribly well. And for the rest of our lives, whenever we came across a big oxer in, in, in a ring when we were walking the course, Harvey and I used to say to him, is it, big, is it as big as Jackpot? Jackpot was that fence at Rotterdam. But I mean, he jumped phenomenally well there. I mean, not only did, it, did he win the, the Europeans, 
three days later, he won the Grand Prix as well. Oh, and as David says, it was his good fortune to have the ride on a horse like Mr Softy. He also chats frankly about the differences in the show jumping tracks they faced back in those days. The emphasis in those days was length, which Mr Softy didn't have an abundance of length scope. I mean, he had carefulness and whatever, but you could, you, you could ride him in to a combination to get the most out of him. But like the, the, the combination in, in, in Mexico in the, in the team class, I mean, the third part of the combination, it was one stride and one stride. He, and he took off and the back pole was a million miles away. I can see it now. And we only made the front bar of the Oxa twice. And, and luckily the horse landed, well, jumped the fence, but came down before the back pole and the pole went under his neck. And we, we hit it obviously for six. I mean, in a way we were lucky because if we'd have got halfway over it, we could have been turned over. I mean, that was quite brutal in those days if you didn't get it right. But that the Olympics was always that little bit more. Course builders who got the job of building an Olympic course always feel they have to do something special and uh, make it bigger and better than the one four years before. And horses that jumped the Olympics usually wanted about six months off after it to get over the experience of it and the effort of it. And um, things have changed an awful lot more, an awful lot these days because I don't think they jump as big. They're a little bit more technical, but there's, they don't need anywhere near the scope that they used to have to have in, in the 60s and 70s. The wonderful David Broom there. So that's it from me. I'm going to hand over now to Horse and Hound showing editor Alex Robinson to see what she has in store from her podcast highlights. Thanks, Jen. It's been lovely to be back out on the show circuit this year and it's been a super busy season with all the major championships taking place as scheduled and most of the county shows staying in the diary despite a few date changes. Undoubtedly, the biggest show of the year for the showing community is the Horse of the Year show, Hoys, and ahead of this year's show, I was delighted to be able to chat to showman, producer, and horse and hound columnist Robert Walker, who actually went on to win the Supreme Horse of the Year title at Hoys with Jill Day's Viewpoint, though we obviously didn't know that was going to happen at the time of the interview. And Rob gave us an insight into how his team gets ready for the big final. Um, I would be one, I mean I know a lot of people like to put all, put the razzmatazz or in front of the horses at home and practice with loud clapping and cheering and music and this that and the other. I've always felt give the horse nice experiences going there and he'll probably accept what he sees there mm-hmm. better. Um, than having a fright beforehand. So we we would, yes, we will go to an indoor school. Luckily, you've just come home from two championship shows where they've had evening performances, so perhaps some animals have experienced it and you'll you'll know roughly how they cope with it. Uh, But we always like to box them up take them to an indoor school probably a couple of times before the the horse of the year show and just let them have a nice experience. So... They're learning to lengthen and shorten because don't forget, hoys for a big horse is tight and you've got nose to tail a little bit. So you have to be able to shorten the horse well and let him come back into underneath you a little bit into the corners just because it's not one you can get a big raking stride on rounds. And you've got to teach him those things. And But also, you know, perhaps if we take in three or four to the school, what's the biggest thing a show horse has got to do? And people that forget this is just stand there and do nothing. Yeah. So 
we will often just stand, have a gather together in the indoor school, in the centre of the indoor. Don't rush straight back to the lorry and get them home. Just let them stand there. Just let them stand and relax because, you know, like, you know, I always say that for a show horse. I mean, 90% of his life, he stood, he stood so still. That's so true. <laughs> so, you know, for us, it's, it's that. And, and I'd say some horses will need different things. We'll, we'll take a couple of horses to follow hounds before the horse of the year show just to give them a little bit of interest outside the yard and a bit of something different. But uh, mainly our preparation will always be about making it a nice experience. We don't like to frighten them at home. And then it, because then you'll find, you know, you'll take the horse and they'll be leading him to the ramp and they'll be doing droppings already because he's he's tense and nervous. Yeah. But that's no good because then you can't get the best out of the horse's muscles and brain if he's, if he's uptight. Mm-hmm. So we always like to make it an enjoyable experience. So actually when you do go to the horse of the year, Hopefully, walking down that alleyway to the to the ring is, you know, they just think, oh, just going to the indoor, yeah, and then yeah. it, they accept it easier. Um, you know, you, you can do all the preparation you like, but some, I mean, that gosh, I remember um, Starry Knight, who's again one of our best winners there. He's had he's had six winners on the trot. He's never been mm-hmm. beaten there. And up until his sixth, sixth year, we would always play a CD in the barn. Um, because he was horrendous. He just literally had nerves from clapping and the atmosphere of it all. So every year he won, I was be sort of treading on eggshells, sat on him and just, just making sure he stayed calm and relaxed for his presentation. Kind of a friend of ours gave us a uh, CD where they videoed um, the, the cricket. So there yeah. was nothing for short moments and then applause. Nothing for short moments and then applause. And we'd have that on a CD player in the yard, and every single horse would carry on eating their hay, bar <laughs> him, and he would always come to the door and look at the CD player. And so you couldn't, we didn't, in the end, it, with him, it was just like, well, I've tried everything we could, but um, he just had that thing about it until the day we were going to retire him on his final t- occasion. And he must have known that was his day for the crowd because he never flinched a muscle. <laughs> he never moved. He never shifted sideways. And I thought, you are git after six seasons of me holding my breath. The day I'm going to retire you, you have decided that you love the clapping. You've stood like a rock. You could have stood on Leisha Lehman's shoes at any point at any, when you presented that sash around your back. And he never moved. He never moved. And I thought, you are bugger. After all these years... <laughs> um, you know, so some some. It's just time, and you know, each horse is different. But we, yeah, we we try and make it an enjoyable experience because I say there's nothing worse than sitting on a horse in that arena with the clapping and, and tension being underneath you. And what a moment Rob's supreme win was with that incredible horse viewpoint. Earlier in the season, I was also lucky to speak to another leading producer, Vicky Smith, who joined us in June to discuss how she made the switch from PE teacher to showing professional. Vicky's first major championship win was at Hoyes in 2016, riding the coloured gelding The Life of Riley. And now Vicky is one of the best in the business. Well, I was a teacher for 12 years and, and I did love my job. Um, and I think what happened was I was I was really lucky. I had some supportive owners such as the Sankey family, and it started off that I would meet up with uh, those rides at shows, um, mm-hmm. and we managed to do very well like that. And then 
as things progressed um, and myself and Alan bought Bridge Farm, so we had four of our own horses here. And now we've gone up to having 14 horses here. So I suppose it, it was a gradual transition. In 2017, Sally Iggledon approached me to see if I would produce her hunter. We also had a couple of our own horses. Then a couple more owners came on board. Um, so I think the last year I went to Hoy's as a school teacher, I had seven horses at Hoy's and then wow. went back to school on the Monday morning. <laughs> and it was at that point I thought, I'm not really sure that I can carry on doing this. So maybe I should give it a try. Um, a lot of professionals actually were really supportive that I, I spoke to. And I was lucky that school were really supportive. And they said, you know, they gave me a sabbatical, which was a year out of teaching. Um, and they said, you know, at the end of the year, the year, I could make my decision whether I went back to teaching or I carried on with the horses. They also said there would always be some supply teaching with me where I could just go in one day a week, two days a week. Um, so I suppose because I had the support from school, it was I felt it was less of a risk. I just thought, well, if things don't work out for a year, then, you know, I, I can just go back to being a teacher mm. again. And and here we are. <laughs> So I hope you enjoyed hearing from both Vicky Smith and Robert Walker. Now it's back to Pippa Room for her Horse and Hound podcast eventing highlights. Thank you, Alex. Well, with my eventing editor hat on, I felt we couldn't look back at our podcast year without hearing from Tom McEwen, who made time to talk to us soon after his return from the Olympics with eventing team gold and individual silver medals clattering around his neck. I was still out in Tokyo when this interview needed to be recorded, so my colleague Catherine Austin kindly stepped in. She asked Tom about daily life in Tokyo as the Olympics took place under the shadow of coronavirus. The first 48 hours, we were completely separate. There was obviously many tests to get on a plane to begin with, and, and as probably people have read, there were a few athletes sadly failing their last 72-hour one, which, mm. which did stop you completely from going at all. There was spit tests every day, which was a Japanese thing and, and regulation. So the first 48 hours, um, because of track and trace and mainly the plane to be honest we were kept completely separate we ate in our rooms weren't allowed near the dressage guys to begin with and vice versa when the jumpers came okay. out um, yeah. we were actually in a sort of a holding hotel i think for gmb athletes so all the floors below us were full of um, different athletes doing all different disciplines that have just flown in that came in for 40 their 48 hours before going off to either their own hotels or the olympic village the athletes village um but yeah, so we basically all food delivered to the room. Most of the time we spent in the room. There was a little area upstairs where we had the odd team meeting. And towards the end of our time, when we definitely formed a, our own bubble, we could wheel our food up there and eat up there. But most, most of it was done by yourself. Um, obviously, COVID played a huge part in these games. Um, mm. They did the most amazing job with it, I must say. Um, but obviously, after putting so much effort in, everyone did, we all did our part to make sure that we weren't going to fall at a final hurdle, really. I know. Can you imagine? And did you see any other really cool non-equestrian athletes then? Yes, many, <laughs> many, <laughs> many. And I got yeah, get, got a bit obsessive. I love all sport, uh, any sport, any top-level sport. Um, even though I'm not very good with names, I'm very good with faces. And what I've seen before, I can I can watch anything. So yeah, if you love sport, it would have been the place to be, really. Well, I bet, yeah. And what happens after the medal ceremonies? It's that funny sort of quickly medals, medals, medals. Ah, it's all over. What did you guys sort of do then? What What did you have to do, really? 
Yeah, so straight away after start getting the medals, obviously with two rounds of show jumping and the team coming first, and obviously we went out there to go and try and get the team gold, which we knew we should be able to definitely be able to achieve, but obviously being pressure on. That was sort of like a relief, but then having to sort of have an hour to refocus, walk mm. a new course and get ready to go again. I think probably the adrenaline probably lasted about three hours longer than it usually would. So there was probably a bit of a a drop, I would say, afterwards. Um, so for me and Laura, we um, we were immediately told we had drug testing. So we had um, people following us around. But straight away, we have media uh, and bits and bobs like that. I can quite easily go to the loo for drug testing. Um, but they fed <laughs> us a lot of water. So I had to hold on for hours and hours and hours uh, of media until I was eventually allowed to go to the loo. Um, which was a definitely a huge relief. So I think at about half one, quarter to two, we finally got back to the hotel. So yeah, it was quite a long late night for us. Um, and then, yeah, a little, little bit of a celebration. Good. I, I saw your BBC interview and you look completely and utterly zoned out, to be honest, zonked. Yeah, we'd done a couple of radio interviews and Oliver and Laura are brilliant at talking. And we were talking to Claire and I saw her in a sound booth um, and thought we were just on Zoom doing it and I had no idea what it was for. I didn't realise <laughs> that people could see us. Um, and we hadn't eaten, so I actually had pizza on the side that I was trying to eat to try attempt to keep myself <laughs> awake. So I had absolutely no idea. At one point, Ollie does grab me and picks me up and puts me back in again. I was thinking, that's very odd. Um, but it, was, it wasn't until afterwards where Claire made a comment that I thought, um, this seems a bit odd. Had to sharpen up, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, yeah, and then, I, then, I, then they told me. And I was like, ah. That oh, was okay. a bit of a, fa- bit of a failure. Oh, Tom, I think we can forgive you for not realising you were on TV and trying to sneak a bit of late-night pizza there. Later on in the interview, Catherine asked Tom about his brilliant equine partner, Toledo de Cursa. I mean, Toledo, who, if we ever needed any proof of how just how outstanding he is, he certainly showed the world. I was interested to read that you never jump him at home. Why don't you? And when did you stop doing that? Uh, I never started. Okay. <laughs> he's never, he's ne- he, yeah, basically, he's never jumped at home. I have tried and he absolutely fires off. Um, so because he's hot, sharp and, and the brain is very active, Rather than trying to drill him into sort of submission, so to speak, um, I have basically just used his powers with him. And we go and rent arenas nearby, but I can only jump the course once and never jump too big. Uh, and he's always just been so good at show, so I just trust him. I go along with him, um, and that's it. So once I'm competing, like now, I have basically gone from uh, Aston to Bicton to Kiso, didn't jump at quarantine, and then straight to the Olympics and I haven't jumped at all in between. How interesting. Yeah, and then in the winter I just take him rent an arena and, and take him out every now and again and go and pop a few fences, but he says when he's had enough because he starts darting off a billion miles an hour. But he basically <laughs> jumps very quick and then absolutely takes off and a bit flat and then if he touches anything he panics, so it's just really not worth it. No, for so sure. Well, we, we, yeah, we just left it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's he like in general at home to sort of for the you know girls to deal with and that sort of thing? Yeah, he, he is really good. Um, like most horses, the more you're starting actually weird enough to build up for three days, the better they become because the work becomes that much harder, that much more continuous. But he is really good. Um, he's very selective over sort of... It's only the getting on part that's really the difficult part, especially when you've gone to a show and he's a bit fresh. That can be a bit funky. But <laughs> apart from that, he is generally really easy. He says when he's le- when he wants to come in from the field, otherwise you can't get near him. 
Uh, in the stable, he's super easy and relaxed. Um, the same as the same as to show, really. Um, and like realistically, everywhere else, he's he's brilliant, really. He's absolute angel. Um, we worked out that he's been with me for nine years now. So mm. yeah, we, we've known each other for a while. thank you tom for that interview and to Catherine. for my second pick i've delved back to may episode 51 of the podcast when i spoke to eventing legend Ginny elliott about her olympic world and european medalist priceless we started off by talking about how she first came across him as a young horse well it was mum and i um we sort of managed to survive by buying and selling young horses and we had that little Jabone who cost £35, um, who actually scraped round badminton and he, he did the juniors as well. So I then slightly got the bug. So we went off and searched the papers, horse and hound, etc., and found um, an advert for two four-year-olds in Devon, which was down as Scott. And as my mother's Devonian anyway, we thought, oh, that, that sounds cool. So off we went. And uh, there was Priceless, he had done a bit of hunting as a four-year-old. And he was, I think it was 900 quid. So I rode him and he seemed very nice. He had a, a false curb and uh, we thought, oh dear, we're not sure about false curbs, whether they affect them or not. Or Anyway, so I just said, well, listen, if he jumps the ditch straight away, will buy him. If he doesn't jump the ditch, we won't. Anyway, he jumped the ditch really well. And that was it. We bought him. And the false curb never was a problem because I suppose it was a false one rather than a real one. But um, it was all rather a sort of strange start in a funny sort of way. And what was he like when you got him home and started sort of training him and and working with him? I think the word willful comes to mind. (laughs) He... um, absolutely wouldn't have a stick he you could carry a stick but if you tapped him behind the girth he just bucked um and i do remember rather an important competition was european no europeans at burley um there was a very big bullfinch uh down a hill we came down the hill to a very big bullfinch with a huge ditch in front and i actually thought it was impossible this fence and i by mistake i gave him a tap behind the saddle and he did nothing but he did about four or five bucks and this fence was looming 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 and thank god he eventually decided he needs to pay attention and uh got into gear before the the actual fence itself but he just wouldn't have the stick um he didn't mind you tapping him on the shoulder but he absolutely wouldn't let you use dressage stick any stick of course, Priceless went on to become one of the all-time greats and was famous for never having a cross-country time fault. I asked Ginny what made him so special in that phase. I think he, he was just gutsy. And, well, let's face it, I was fairly inexperienced when we, we went to Bramham together and then our first Burley together. And I can tell you, he, he put up with a lot of mistakes <laughs> and he was just a soldier. Um, I suppose together he, he became unbelievably accurate thanks to Lady Hugh uh, Russell uh, with her dots that she used to put on cross-country fences. And she made us, you know, if you didn't jump the dot, you might as well gallop back home because that was what you had to do. So it was sort of, in a way, thanks to her that 
he he became incredibly accurate and i suppose me too and so i think he he managed to get inside the time and indeed remember he carried 11 stone 11 and and had the roads and tracks and steeplechase as well because of his accuracy and because you could turn on a sixpence and jump a corner followed by a corner or a very difficult angled rail there was one at um burley i remember called the brandy glass which i don't think anybody jumped before i got there but i thought i was late because my stopwatch had stopped so i had to jump it but there wouldn't be many horses that you'd have a go at that one on and through his accuracy and reliability he found a way of of getting inside the time you know hats off to him really and you mentioned there about having to carry a certain weight, which is not something we really know about in the sport now. And I'm sure that younger riders aren't really aware of at all. Just explain what the rules were in those days. Well, you had to carry a minimum of 11 stone 11. So I carried two stone dead, dead weight. So I couldn't physically put, pull my saddle off the horse myself. And that was the, you know, levelling with men and women, which was in a way amazing because we really were level but on the other hand you know you could argue the point carrying dead weights has its disadvantages to live weight so that was the rule and that's what we did and um you know he 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 managed it and we we had a a special weight cloth uh, invented which had two hooks that hooked into the pommel of the saddle to try and keep the weight off his withers and you know the steeplechase as well you know it it was a true test of of, of stamina um i have to say i'm i'm very relieved they they i never sadly competed when they removed the steeplechase because it was my least favorite part of the whole thing well i hope you enjoyed hearing from Ginny and of course from tom McEwen. we'll be back in a moment The Horse and Hand podcast is currently supported by Veredas and their UK distributor Zebra. The Veredas boot collection ensures that your horse's legs are protected in the latest, most technically advanced, anatomically designed boots available on the market. No matter your preferred discipline, jumpers, eventing or dressage, Veredas has a horse boot designed for your horse. Now, last but not least in our 2021 podcast highlight show, it's over to Horse and Hounds dressage editor, Polly Bryan. Thanks, Pippa. Well, for me, the absolute highlight of this year was the Tokyo Olympics. And so I think it is only right to hear from Lottie Fry, who produced such fantastic performances at her first Olympic Games to help the British dressage team win bronze out in Tokyo. She spoke to Lucy Elder just after the conclusion of the Olympic dressage while I was still out in Tokyo with Pippa and it's so interesting to hear her reflections on her first games. Uh, it was an amazing arena to ride into and it, although there was no public obviously there was still so much atmosphere and um, the whole short side was filled with other riders and um, other people from the equestrian park so there was people there even though it wasn't full and um, I think the arena was just so nice and there was so much atmosphere and it was really built up so that just gave it such an amazing feel and there's like cameras at all angles everywhere <laughs> so you knew that everyone was watching and of course it's always um, 
amazing a championship to have the the seven judges so there's kind of judges sat at every angle um yeah but to ride down the center line with Everdale was it was a really amazing feeling kind of can hardly describe it it was just like the first time I went in there I was like wow I'm at the Olympics let's just enjoy it now <laughs> oh wonderful and did you manage to you know enjoy it? obviously you're so focused on what you're doing can you have time to to enjoy that as well Yes, I actually did. I really kind of made sure I did. And yeah. I just had so much fun in there. And Everdale was just with me like every step of the way. And it was just such a nice feeling to be able to trust him in there and just be able to enjoy it. And I loved your music and that really suited him. And I loved the theme of the Rihanna Diamonds and things. And it was kind of like this sort of thread that Tom Hunt used to link your special and your freestyle. And yeah, tell us a bit about that music. Did you did you have a hand in choosing it? Um, well, um, Diamonds is like my favorite song ever. So (laughs) the more we use that, the better. I love it. And then for my freestyle, Tom kind of put together a few things and then we just had a look to see if I liked it or not. Um, and he made it quite like pop and modern, which I really liked and it suited Everdale really well. Um, and then he kind of made it more subtle actually, which was quite nice, uh, made it a bit more instrumental. It was wonderful. And what was it like as well, sort of riding riding as part of the team out there with, with Carl and Charlotte? It was really cool, actually. It was kind of a really proud moment to be able to um, compete on a team with both of them, especially because they've kind of been idols for me since I was very young. And now to be on the same team as them is quite surreal. And it's really special, actually, because Carl was obviously on the team with my mum in 92, and now I'm on the team with him as well. So that was, yeah, quite a special a special thing to happen. But it was so much fun and I loved every second and we had such a great atmosphere on the team. Um, we got Carl into exercising a little bit, which was fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. I was gonna ask what it was like, thought the, the atmosphere and things in Team GB camp and it was it was amazing and we had such a great support team from um Team GB and it was like anything you could possibly wish for, it was it was available for us and that just makes it the whole experience so much easier and Kind of, there's nothing that you need to worry about. The horses had their physio every day. We had physio and kind of every need is taken care of. Ah, Lottie Fry there. It's so fascinating to hear what life was like behind the scenes out in Tokyo and what a great atmosphere there was in the whole Team GB camp. For my second choice, I've gone right back to the very start of 2021, those dark days of January when we were just embarking on yet another lockdown. I like to think that our interview with none other than Charlotte Dujardin might have lifted a few spirits during that time. And listening back to that episode now, I couldn't help smiling at Charlotte's comments about Gio, aka Pumpkin, who at the time had just finished second at the 2020 National Grand Prix Championships, and of course went on to win no fewer than four championship medals in 2021 at the Olympics and at the Europeans. Yeah, I mean, little pumpkin is again nine. He was nine years old last year during his first year. I always knew he. I did again. I didn't want to push him too much last year, being that he was only nine years old. Um, but he honestly has a heart of gold. Like, I mean, again, he tries so hard. 
uh it was quite interesting actually because i you know i forget how little he's done and yeah. at the uh winter championships in the grand prix he i took him in i did the arena walk in the morning uh with both horses and uh he i, I guess with other horses he walked around there didn't bat an eyelid and uh you know there was a massive christmas tree in the corner yeah. and it was all very very christmasy in there um and when i went in to do the test he was a little bit like a deer in headlights he kind of literally just he he just felt like he held himself he was like quite tight in the actual test and uh you know i think god he's that was his fifth grand prix he's done that's his second indoor show so he never did small tour he went from advanced medium to into two he did two into twos to then grand prix and you know because i came out and i felt a little bit like oh you know because i knew we'd improved so much at home and yeah then i went into the test and okay you know i probably made more mistakes than uh i have done through any test on him actually in the grand prix but then i have to realize like he is nine he has done yeah. five grand prix you know <laughs> he hasn't done much in that environment and then bless him he went into the freestyle and he was like a different horse he he just delivered like he went in there he was completely confident he'd learned so much from the day before uh that's his second ever music he'd never even done music at small tour so again very inexperienced oh at that um but again that's the sort of horse he is you know he never even when he's a bit afraid he never says no he keeps trying you know and you can feel that he's trying um and it's the most incredible feeling when you have that from a horse that you know they're a little bit unsure they're kind of looking at you for confident i could give him the confidence and then he and then he goes like, oh, all right okay yeah no i'm fine um and and that was great you know i think it was a really special feeling in the music that i got from him and i i was so so proud of him because it, i really felt like from the day before to that day he was like two different horses and oh. then when you have a horse like that you know you're on for a winner because you know it's those horses that go in there the second day that either get worse or you know don't improve that's then when it becomes difficult yeah and and actually that improvement throughout the show is going to be even more important than ever um that's in tokyo it. isn't it because it's the grand prix special which will be the second test yep. you ride that actually counts towards the team medals yeah i mean those sort of shows i think it's always great because you're there i don't know like three or four days five days before so they do get to kind of settle in a bit more mm. um so but it's it's great you know like i mean i'm so excited about him um and well them all really i think i'm <laughs> i feel very lucky and blessed that i have such fantastic courses to look forward to Ah, oh, even back then, Charlotte knew Gio would be a star and what an absolute delight the pair of them were to watch this year. I also found it so interesting listening to Charlotte talking about one of her other exciting horses, the lovely grey mare Florentina, and the challenges that she encountered in her training. I think it's an excellent reminder that training horses is never straightforward, even for riders as brilliant as Charlotte. I've learned so much from Florentina. You know, she was always really incredibly easy in the sense of like she, again super trainability uh not ever phased by anything she wasn't phased by crowds or arenas you know she she was really really good in that sense 
it kind of got to the Grand Prix work with the Piaf Passage and um, she had the talent for both the Piaf and the Passage but it was then just realising that I had to give her the time to put the two together you know if you looked at her physically and her confirmation she would be a little bit difficult in the sense that she has that like very she's very uphill yeah uh and you know it just it just needed that she needed to get stronger through her body and then through her back and uh you know to put the two combinations together um which i've 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 learned so much from her by from from because you know I knew she had the talent and I'd be like well why can't she do it yeah, you know she showed yeah. both of them and I was like I know she can do it and she could <laughs> do it um and you know it's really helped again having another year of just training at home and it's been brilliant in the sense that it's given her another year to strengthen up and um you know, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because people don't see horses. People think they're off or they're injured. And, you mm. know, an actual fact, it was the the more reason that I, you know, I, I did took her to demonstrations, um, you know, get her out like that rather than actually putting her in a test environment because I knew she just wasn't ready to do it. But this year I feel she's ready to go do Grand Prix. And, you know, I knew she was worth waiting for not to rush her because I knew if I was to rush her and push her I probably you know would have wouldn't have a horse so um I've now I've got the combinations together she's really confident and she feels really good really strong um so you know again a lovely really new exciting year to have her out at Grand Prix Well, it's always fantastic to hear from the likes of Charlotte and Lottie. I hope you all enjoyed listening back to those extracts. Thank you, Polly. And thank you to Jen and Alex for sharing your favourite interviews with us too on this Horse and Hound podcast episode, currently supported by Veredas and their UK distributor, Zebra. If you've enjoyed hearing these interview extracts, don't forget the whole Horse and Hound back catalogue is available to download via your favourite podcast app or at horseandhound.co.uk forward slash podcast. You can catch interviews with the likes of John Whitaker, Gemma Tattersall, Dan Skelton, Carl Hester, Sophie Wells, Katie Jerem Hunnable, Jeff Billington and William Foxpit, among many others. And if you want to relive this summer's Olympics day by day, you can also find our daily Tokyo special podcast in the archive. Next week on the podcast, we'll be back with another festive special when we bring you a special feature interview with Olympic champion Ben Mayer, talking about the horses who've made his career. Tune in next week for that. And meanwhile, Happy New Year. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.